0: Well, we'll start off this morning with a little Guess Who. You'll see on the side screens two characters coming up. Uh, The one on the left may be a little bit easier. Uh, The one on the right is actually the one I'm asking for the name of. Uh, While you think on that, let me introduce myself. I'm Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor. Uh, To Harbor Online Community, welcome to you today. So glad you're tuning in. And uh, we love you. And hopefully this week we can connect with you some way, in some way. And then to everyone here in person, welcome to you as well. Hopefully I can greet you at the door, but if not, then just wanna extend my welcome now to you. So the two characters, one on the left, Jimmy Stewart. The one on the right, anyone know his name? Clarence, Clarence. there we go, Clarence the Angel, very good. Uh, These, this picture is actually from the movie. Um, What's it called? It's a wonderful, Life. oh jeez, I knew that, just a little blank here. From the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, made in 1964, Jimmy Stewart plays the character of George Bailey. It's actually rated one of the greatest films ever made. And uh, if you've never had, it's a Christmas movie. So if you've never had a chance to watch it, 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 again, you see, you have to have a good attention span to watch it through because movies move at a different pace uh, today than they did back then. But the reason I mentioned Clarence is he's part of the plot. Is Clarence is an angel. And the plot of the movie is that Clarence helps George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart, see how his life has touched other lives, and in doing so, Clarence gets his, gets his wings. And every time, if you've seen the movie, every time a bell rings, apparently an angel gets their wings. So that's, uh, it's a wonderful life version of what angels are busy doing. It's not biblical, but it's a wonderfully nice plot, uh, twist there and you can watch and enjoy. The reason I bring all of that up is because Clarence is probably one of the most famous movie angels there is, and it it begs the question, what are angels actually doing? What are angels actually involved with? If they're not working hard to get their wings, what present day are angels doing? And Peter gives us one answer to that question in the book we're studying. He just sort of throws it in at the end. And if you're reading quickly, you'd miss it. But here's what Peter says about angels. One thing they're doing. Even angels long to look into these things. Do you hear what Peter's saying there? He's saying, even the angels, they have a longing, a desire, a craving to look into, to gaze, to explore these things. Now, now we should pause there, and that should just humble us for a moment. Here, here's my general assumption. I have no proof on this, but my general assumption is that angels have a fairly keen intellect. They're smart And my general assumption, just probably by the nature of time they have existed, they are smarter than we are. That's my general assumption. No proof on that. But here's what Peter's saying. The angels who are smarter than we are desire to look into something. They want to see something. They want to gaze. They have more to learn, and they desire to explore and to understand this truth. That's what Peter's saying. Even the angels, they long to look into these things. Now, Peter is saying this not just to give us an update on what angels are doing, but it really matters to the thesis that he's building in the book of First Peter that we're studying. What Peter is writing to and he's talking to is a group of Christians who are, remember, this was the first week in the introduction, they're feeling like exiles. They're being excluded. They're being persecuted. They're being ridiculed and mocked for their faith in Christ, for the way they're living out their lives. They're very different moral code than the people around them. And so they're going through suffering and trials. And Peter is trying, in the midst of these distresses, in the midst of these trials, to give them encouragement. And if you were here last week, here's what Peter said In the midst of your trials, you can greatly rejoice. You can greatly rejoice. And last week, we looked at two reasons why you can greatly rejoice in trials. One is because our faith is being deepened. God is using trials to sort of scrape away the impurities of our faith and take us deeper. And we marked last week that what matters most is our faith. And then the second thing that Peter is saying is we can rejoice in trials because it deepens our relationship with Jesus. Trials have a unique way of bringing us close to Christ was watching last night, someone told a story of a woman that he knew. So it's a couple of people removed, but the guy I was watching on the video was talking about this woman years ago. Again, this is sort of a relevant story today. She was captured by the Taliban in Afghanistan. She was there as a missionary. So this is some years ago, but still in modern times. And she was talking about her experience in jail. And what she had told him was she said that it sometimes the presence of Christ felt so real, it was like I could almost touch him. He was just so there with me in that prison. And then she said this to him, at times I miss prison. At times, I miss prison. What's she saying? It certainly wasn't the food that she misses. it. It was missing the very tangible presence of Christ with her because he so drew near to her in those moments. That's what Peter is saying. This story of this woman was saying, I could greatly rejoice in my trial because Christ felt so near. Now, as I said this last week, as I wrapped up, here's what I said. This is monumentally hard. It's so hard, isn't it? And I marked that last week. I was just telling you what Peter said, but I also wanted to say it's really difficult. We see Peter giving us these great assurances, things we can put our confidence in that nothing else… You know, our faith is being developed and our relationship with Christ is being deepened, but it's hard to keep that in mind. It's hard to live that way. We all know that, and it's almost like Peter anticipates that objection. It's almost like he's saying, yeah, I know it's hard, and so here's what I want you to do. I want you to do what the angels do. Keep doing what the angels do. That will help you be able to rejoice in your trials. That's the logic Peter is using. If you're finding it hard to rejoice, if you're finding it hard to see perspective, finding it hard to see your faith developing and your relationship deepening, then just do what the angels do. So, if you're in a trial today, that's what Peter has for us. Return back and gaze into, explore what the angels are exploring. Now, if you're not in a trial, this is still really good advice. This is still really helpful words. If the angels, in their keen intellect, desire to know more about this, so shouldn't we also. So, whatever spot you find yourself today, what Peter is giving us is something really clear. He's saying, gaze into this, explore this. And then he's going to describe it. And then right at the end, he'll just give us some real practical ways we actually do that. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. Sort of what we do at Harbour, if you're new to Harbour, we just sort of pick a passage of Scripture most times and just sort of follow along and just sort of see the logic of what the author of Scripture is developing. So today it's verses 10 through 12, and right there you see at the end, verse 12, is even the angels long to look into these things. So, that's how Peter ends. But we're asking ourselves the question, what are these things? That's what matters. And if you go back to verse 10, we left off at the end of verse 9 last week, you go back to verse 10, here's it starts with three words in the NIV. Peter says, concerning this salvation, concerning this salvation. And the whole rest of the verses deal with our salvation. And then at the very end, Peter says, the angels long to look into our salvation or in to the gospel message. Just think about that for a moment. The angels need no forgiveness. They they have never been defiled by sin, yet they have this deep interest in the gospel, in the deep, deep interest in our salvation. And and here's what I would learn. No one then completely ever knows all of the gospel. If the angels need to study it and think about it and, and, you know, ponder it, how much more? Do we need to study and ponder and think and pray over the gospel? The angels are like encouraging us. They're students of the gospel, and they're saying to us, be students of the gospel also. So here's what, Peter's, here's what Peter, I think, is saying. If I was summarizing it in, in one sentence, how do we keep rejoicing in trials? What do we do when we don't feel we have much joy? We explore the greatness of the gospel. That's what the angels are doing. They're gazing into it. They desire to look and to understand more. And Peter would say the same to us. Keep exploring the greatness of the gospel. And so what we're going to see in these next three verses is let me just give a little bit of an outline of how Peter, how Peter develops this. He's going to give us three agents, three agents that aid us in exploring the gospel. Who could help us in this exploration? We're going to see three agents, then we're going to see two descriptors of the gospel. Peter, you're saying explore the greatness of the gospel. What do you mean by the gospel? Well, Peter's going to actually give us two very clear descriptors, and then we'll see one source. Well, where do we actually find this, Peter? Where do I actually explore it? So it's three agents, two descriptors, one source. Let me just read the verses for you. They come quickly. There's a lot of words, but as I read, look for the three agents. Look for the three agents, the who's of who's going to help us do this exploration. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even the angels longed to look into these things. Take a breath. A lot of words there, isn't it? A lot of words there. So, we're looking at the three agents, the two descriptors, and the one source. Did you see any agents in there? Any who's that help us explore the gospel? The first come, it's words four and five. Concerning this salvation, the prophets... So, the first agent is the prophets, those of the Old Testament Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the other prophets of the Old Testament. And what did they do? They searched intently and took great care. End of verse 10. What were they doing? They searched and they looked and they took great care to predict the future, to predict that someone would come to fix the problem of sin. In the world. That's what Peter is saying the Old Testament prophets were doing. But look at this fascinating phrase. Think of what Isaiah did in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, whoever your favorite prophet is. Look what it says there down at the end of, or middle of verse 12. What were they doing? They were not serving themselves but you. They were not serving themselves but you. Think about that for a moment. The whole book of Isaiah is just such a wonderful book full of this great prophecy. Who was Isaiah serving? He was serving not himself but he was serving us today. Peter's saying to the people he's writing with, Isaiah was serving you. Now, certainly what he wrote would have been helpful for the people of the day, provided comfort and hope and gave them faith for a future. But ultimately, Peter is saying that we have this great privilege today that the Old Testament prophets wrote so that we could understand the gospel. Us today in the age of Jesus, that's why they wrote, and he's trying to raise the great privilege we have of the point we're in, how they all work to serve and support us in our pursuit, our exploration of the gospel. The second agent, I'm going through these quickly, right down at the end of verse 12, it says, to you by those who preach the gospel to you. So one is the past prophets. Number two is the present day preachers. And so when Peter writes, he's thinking of himself for sure and others who came, and we talked about this last week, the people Peter is writing to had never actually seen Jesus face to face. And so Peter's saying, how did they learn about Jesus? Well, preachers came and shared the gospel with them. And shared the good news of Jesus. We have the same thing today. We might think, oh, no, we don't have this same advantage. Wouldn't we love to meet with Peter? We have this same thing today, this same privilege. We have Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Jude and James and Peter. They all have written to us. If you wonder, if they were to come, what would they say to us? They would open up the Scriptures and say, here's what I've given you so that present day you may know the heart of Jesus. So the first agent is the prophets of old. The second agent is the apostles of the New Testament. And the third agent, you saw it in two different ways, the Spirit of Christ and then the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of Christ is Jesus Christ in in the person of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in the lives of the Old Testament prophets. In In the New Testament here, it's the Holy Spirit inspiring the gospel words going out. Either way, the agent is the Holy Spirit. And God is saying, I've sent my Holy Spirit to confirm and to inspire and to reveal my infallible word to you. It's the Holy Spirit who's working through all of this to provide aid and help in the Scriptures so that we might explore the greatness of the gospel. So, real quick, what are the three agents? The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, and the Holy Spirit. That's the three agents. Now, the two descriptors. How might you describe the gospel? We're going to explore the greatness of it. Peter gives us two phenomenal phrases. There's so much depth to them. But in your minds, what would you say? If I said, just give me a phrase to give me the, help me understand the gospel, what would you say? How, how would you lay that out? Look, look at what Peter says here as his two descriptors. The first one is in verse 10. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. The grace that was to come to you. That's how Peter explains the gospel. So quick question here as you read that verse, uh, who is the initiator in those verses? Where does the gospel start? Who does it begin with? Well, as you look at that phrase, the grace that has come to you, it didn't start with us, does it? It starts with God. God. God, what Peter is saying is God has come to us, and this is the great news of the gospel. It's not what we have done, what we need to do, but it is what God has done for us. So here's my summary. You see it on the screens. The gospel is God's grace come to you. This is the first descriptor that Peter gives that he wants us to run into. What God has done is the controlling factor It's what matters most. It's what Jesus has done in the past that matters most. I was with someone a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And as I explained that to them, they said, well, I don't believe that. I believe that uh, Jesus did not die and thus was not resurrected. And so as he then stated his belief, then I said to him, well, how do you know that's true? how do you know that's true, right? You've said something, but how can you prove that to be true? And then he looked at me, and he, as he pondered that, he said, well, no, no, it's just what I believe, and you believe something different. And then I said to him, well, either Jesus died or he didn't, right? There's only one way to go with this. It's not a belief. It's actually a fact, And then he looked at me a little confused, like he'd never thought of it that way before, right? It's like we were talking about George Washington, and he said, well, I don't believe George Washington died. And I'd say, well, I believe he died. There's only one right answer to that question, right? There's only one right answer in the same way with Jesus. And we left the conversation by me saying, if you read the New Testament, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they prove that he rose from the dead. But in some ways, this is what Uh, Peter is giving here. The gospel is God coming to us with certain facts, with certain things that has happened. It's God taking the initiative in the past. God came through Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. But the other great phrase here is the gospel is God's grace come. Who did it come to? Did it come to the world? Did it come to a screen near you? Did it come to nature? No, what does it say? It's God's grace come to you. And what Peter is marking here in the Gospel is that God comes and He begins to work inside of us. He begins to stir us. He begins to draw us. In some ways, God begins to invade us. Peter's saying God has worked in the past, there's events that has happened, He's come, but now He's coming personally to you to invade, to draw you, to speak to you. And what message is He coming with? Do we need to be afraid? Do we need to be nervous? Do we need to be apprehensive? No, what's message he's bringing? It's God's grace to you. Think of that for a moment. God is coming near to you and me personally, and it's a message of grace. You don't have to earn my favor. You don't have to work for it. It's just a free gift. I'm just coming, bringing my grace towards you. This is always the posture of God. Think how encouraging this is. Think how encouraging this would be for people who are going through suffering. Peter is saying, the angels gaze into this. They are amazed that God is always coming to you personally, bringing his grace. What can we learn? He loves you. If you're in Christ, he loves you. He's died for you. And in all of this, if he is coming, he has a purpose and a plan for your life. All of that phrase implies so much. And Peter's saying, just keep going deeper and deeper into that reality. Gaze into that. You will find such encouragement there. And that's what will help you rejoice in the time of trial. Uh, This week, um, I'm part of a little gathering and mostly Christians in the gathering. But then this week, Uh, someone brought a friend, and she was not a follower of Christ, and she didn't know anyone in the group. So you've got to have great respect for her sort of showing up in this group where she knew that she believed something different than everyone else there, and she was great, participated wonderfully. And we got to the spot where we were talking about the grace of God and how it forgives everything all of our sin from the past, all from the present, all for the future, the overwhelming grace of God and his forgiveness of us. And she was processing that. And then she said, she said, I find this hard to believe. I find it hard that God could forgive someone of everything. And then her example was a death row inmate. She said, you know, how could God forgive someone who's done something so horrible? so awful, so, and she just said, I just cannot see that God could ever do that. And so we had a wonderful group discussion, you know, about one, about the sincerity of repentance, but then also about God's incredible love, that he would love us all so much and bring his grace towards us that he loves us that much. It was a wonderful discussion. And then at the end, as we were wrapping up, actually we were wrapped up and she was just talking to me afterwards, she said, ah, she still couldn't get her head around it. And she said this, I just don't know why people have to murder, right? Think of the person on death row. Why did they have to kill somebody? I just wish people wouldn't kill each other so God didn't have to forgive them. Right? And she said, I just wish people wouldn't lie, and I wish people wouldn't steal, and I just wish when people kept, you know, said they were going to do something, they would just keep their word. And she, I'm not repeating her list great, but she just sort of went through her list of moral things that she wished people would do and they were not doing, and she was lamenting that and thinking, why does God have to forgive when people are just, you know, messing up all the time? And she said that, and, and I, I agreed with her. I wish that was the case. And then after, after she finished that, and she said it so graciously, I said, well, can I just push against that for a minute? Can I just say one thing? And uh, she said, oh yeah, sure, sure, I'd like to hear what you think. So I said this, as she had just laid out her moral code. I said, well, how's that going for you? You know, how, how are you doing at living up to the standard that you've just laid out? Right, because she had said, right, I just wish people would, when they say something, I just wish they would keep their word and do what they say. And then at that moment, she was so humble. She was so humble. She said, you know, I'm not doing so well at that. I'm not doing so well. And I appreciated her humility. And then that gave me an opportunity to say, that's why we need the grace of God. That's why we need the grace because none of us can keep the standard. None of us can keep our own standard. She couldn't live up to her own standard, much less the standard of God. That's why we need His grace and His forgiveness. This is what Peter is saying here. We can't reach God on our own. We can never be good enough to reach the standard. He has to come to us and offer His grace. Just think of the angels for a moment, right? They're they're perfect, never sinned once, no defilement of sin, have no need of the gospel, and they are looking in on this, and they must be saying, wow, this is amazing that God would offer his grace to people that have fallen so far short. And then the angels must look down on us at times, and they must think, why would anyone reject this? this is so good. Why would you not move towards it? Why would you not want to know more about it? They must at times just shake their heads as they think about our response to the gospel. So that's the first descriptor that Peter gives. Isn't it good? The grace of God come to us. That's the gospel. You can keep exploring the depth of that. Here's the The second descriptor, just look down, it's a little bit further down, it's in the Old Testament. What did all the Old Testament, it's in verse 11, they predicted what? The sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would come. So what Peter is saying is, what were the prophets doing in the Old Testament? They searched carefully, they tried to find something, they tried to figure something out, they tried to point towards something, what is all the Old Testament doing? They are pointing towards the sufferings and glories of Christ. Do you see that there? The gospel is this. Here's Peter's second descriptor. First, it's the grace of God come to us, come to you. And the second descriptor is the gospel is the sufferings and glories of Christ. The gospel is the sufferings of glory. This is what all the Old Testament, that's what Peter's saying. What did the Old Testament predict? One thing, the sufferings and the, of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. I've had some great conversations over the last two or three weeks. I so appreciate that because it gives me illustrations here today. And so, uh, but a couple of weeks ago, another story. I was with a young man and he was reflecting on his life and we were trying to figure out what it meant to trust Christ. And then he said these wonderful words and I won't quote him so well, but as he reflected on how he wanted to live, he said something like, you know, you remember Abraham when he offered up his son Isaac? I want to have that kind of faith and obedience that Abraham had. And then he said, you remember Job who suffered so well and even interceded for his friends when he was suffering? I want to be able to suffer well like Job. And then he said, you know, David, who won a great victory, I want to have the courage of David. And he had about five or six, and he just rattled them off so quickly. And as he said them, it was wonderful right? It was inspiring. I was like, wow, I respected him. He's like, I want to be like Abraham and David and Job and Daniel, and the list went on. Now, it, it's a good quality, but yet as I thought about that, again, I thought, well, he, these characters also had some downsides to them too, right? They're not all perfect characters. We tend to remember their good traits and not their bad traits, but then here's the second thing. As he was reading the Old Testament, As he read through those characters, what was he saying? These men and women are there to be great moral examples for me. They're pointing towards that, and I want to be like them. Mark Twain is, I believe, a noted atheist, and most people attribute this quote to him, whether he said it or not. You'll see it on the screens here. Here's what Mark Twain said. Some people are troubled by the things in the Bible they can't understand. What troubles me are the things I can understand. And what what is Mark Twain saying? He's saying, I read some things. I read of Abraham and Job and David. And I see their moral quality. I see what they did on the good side. And it troubles me because I can't live up to their standard. What Mark Twain was saying, what troubled and bothered him was how hard it was to obey, how hard it was to follow what was in the Bible. And you see the trap my friend was in. He was saying, I want to be like these characters and not just one, but all three together. He will fall short. He will fall short of that standard. And you see what he missed? He missed what Peter says. The purpose of Abraham and Job and David is not to tell us they're great more examples, is to point us to Jesus. Think of the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know, Isaac is rescued in the last moment, but not so with Christ. Christ is offered up by his father and dies as a sacrifice for us. So we see Isaac saved, but we see Jesus. He points us to Jesus sacrificed for us. We see Job, truly the the innocent, mostly innocent sufferer, but we see Jesus, the totally innocent sufferer. And then who are we in that story? We're not Job. We're the stupid friends who give Job bad advice, and Job intercedes for them. And what does Jesus do for us? He intercedes for us as the innocent sufferer. And then David, which we've talked about before, who wins a great victory. Who are we in the story? We're the scared troops who run away. But yet Jesus steps forward and wins the ultimate victory over sin. We have to do nothing. He does it all, and we just get to participate in the victory. That's what Peter is saying. All the Old Testament points towards the sufferings and the glory of Jesus. And if you miss, you have to just keep going deeper and deeper into that because as you see it, it gives us something to hold on to to gaze into in the midst of our trials. And so this morning, maybe you're here today and you've realized this morning that you can't keep your own moral standard. You have a standard for behavior and you can't keep it. You certainly can't keep the standard of the Old Testament saints, and you certainly, by far, have fallen short of God's standard. You've fallen short on all three counts. If that's where you would find yourself today, wouldn't you realize this morning that God's grace is coming to you? It comes to you. It invades us. It draws us. God says, won't you come to Christ and see his sufferings and his glories for you? And won't you receive what he offers, which is his grace? If you've never seen that before, if you think it's all about your performance, living up to a standard, but you've been humbled today and realized you've fallen short, oh, come to Christ. Receive the grace that he offers. Don't delay. Come. Christ has met the standard for you. He is the Isaac that has been sacrificed. He is the Job that suffers. He is the David who has won the victory for you. Come and receive him. This is what Peter wants us to ponder. The sufferings, and then also the glories of Christ. You see that? When the Old Testament prophets looked forward for that, they thought those would be pretty close together. We're realizing today there's a little bit of a gap, at least 2,000 years, between the suffering and the ultimate glory of Christ. Just think about Jesus today. He gets no glory, does he? He's misunderstood. He's misrepresented. He's misused. His name is dishonored. Is any name used more as a curse word in the name of Jesus? We're marking here. Peter marks that one Jesus in the past was a suffering servant. But one day, he will return as the glorious king. And we will behold him. And in that moment, Jesus will receive all the glory that his name is due. In that moment, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess And Peter's saying, gaze into that. See that. Let it encourage you that one day Christ will be victorious. He will return. He will reign as king. And it's like Peter's saying this, all the suffering of Christ, it's going to lead to his glory one day. And that should encourage us enough. But here's the second thing Peter wants us to gaze in. All of your suffering and all of our trials today, what does it lead to? It leads to glory. It leads to glory as well. I don't understand how all that works out, but that's what Peter is saying. One day in our suffering, just as Christ will be received glory, so will we. So those are the two descriptors of the gospel. That's what Paul says. That's what Peter says the angels are gazing into, that God's grace has come to us and the sufferings and the glory of Christ. Aren't they wonderful descriptors? Couldn't you just spend a whole year just trying to unpack all that they mean. So we've got three agents. We've got two descriptors. And then really quick here, one source. Where, where do we find this? How do we actually do this, Peter? How do we gaze in? How do we explore the greatness of the gospel? Well, Peter's almost told us, right? The three agents help us understand it. It's the Old Testament prophets, it's the New Testament apostles, and it's the Holy Spirit inspiring. And what do they all have in common? It's the Word of God. It's the Holy Scriptures. Where do we explore the greatness of the gospel? We explore it through reading this book, through being in this book. Yes, we find these things in nature and in our thoughts and in community, all valuable, but ultimately, Peter is saying all of these things the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit was designed to put the Bible together. It is in this book that we discover and explore the greatness of the gospel more than anything else. We need to be students of this book. The number one indicator of how people are growing in their faith is the time we spend in this book. So I think I do this about once a year just to encourage us, encourage us in our Bible reading. And so let me do it again. I just transfer these slides from year to year. So you'll see on the three slides three quick ways that if you want to go deeper in the Word of God, this is the ESV study Bible, best study Bible out there, I use it every morning, Uh, so appreciate it. It's got little notes, so you read and then you can understand more the Scripture. It's so helpful. Then if you're looking for a greater resource than a study Bible and Christmas is coming, uh, you'll see the next slide. There's a commentary and there's a systematic theology. These are the two that I recommend, just wonderful ways to understand, to just go a level deeper. And then the last slide you'll see is simply devotional material. Okay, so I get up each morning. I want to read the Scripture. Yes, are there aids for me? These three help you go deeper into Scripture. The first, as I recommended it last year, or the first, yeah, Tim Keller, he's got these ones on Proverbs. I've just been enjoying that. Uh, He's also got one on Psalms. He's got one on marriage. They really, they're short, but they have great depth to them. D.A. Carson, For the Love of God, two-volume set. Could take you two years to go through that. And then lastly, if you want to do a little more reading and filling in the blanks, there's this whole series called, this one is called Philippians For You, but they have just about every book of the Bible. You could choose, and you read a little bit of Scripture, and then they've got some questions you answer, and you can go through those slowly or whatever pace you like. Wonderful Aids in that regard. So Peter's saying these three agents all work to give us this one source, the Bible. And, and, and what Peter would be encouraging us today is this is where we explore the greatness of the gospel. We must be students of this book. This is where God's Spirit speaks to us about all that He has done for us. Fascinating, isn't it? that the angels never tire of looking into the gospel. All these years, 2,000 years, they're still looking in and exploring it. There is no end to gospel exploration. The depths of it are yet, we cannot discover all the depths and we certainly can't apply all the facets of the gospel. And as you think of what will hold your attention over the long term, Stuff will hold your attention for a season, for a year, even for a decade, but nothing will hold your attention over a lifetime. The only thing that holds it is the gospel. The only thing that holds our attention and our affections for our entire lives is the gospel. May that be the underlying conviction of our lives that the one thing we need to gaze and look at is the one thing the angels are doing. Help me to discover and apply the depth and the breadth of the gospel to let it grab my attention and my affections to greater and greater degree. And may that be the underlying conviction of our church, that the one thing that holds our attention, that binds us together, that draws us and captivates our attention and our affections is the gospel itself. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we look and we mark that the angels will be our eternally fascinated by the gospel. And oh God, I pray, Lord, You see our level of affection and attention on the gospel. But God, we pray, Lord, even this morning, Lord, for wherever we're at, Lord, may you grow our affection towards what you have done for us on the cross. That we know our eyes can be so easily blinded, and we don't see the great light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ. And so, God, we just plead with you. God, we desire to see the gospel more. We desire to desire to see the gospel more. And so God, help us as individuals. God, in the midst of trials for those that are in very difficult seasons now, oh God, may they just give them extra grace today to gaze into it and to have the perspective and insurance and the confidence that you want to give through the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we close our service with four words each Sunday. They just remind us that we gather, but we gather to go and share this good news of the gospel, to let it soak into us, but not just to take it and bottle it up, but to share it out. And so let me say these four words. They remind us of our mission. Harbor, we are sent.